Peace We Build It is a podcast about the Alliance for Peacebuilding and its network of over 130 organizations working globally in 181 countries to reduce and prevent violent conflict and build sustainable peace. Host Tanya Domi will interview AFP's global partners, expert guests, and policy advocates on how they tackle the challenging work of conflict prevention and peace building in a world riddled by increasing violent conflict and war. Our guests today include Rana Salman, the Palestinian Executive Director of Combatants for Peace, a Palestinian and Israeli grassroots activist movement that is committed to nonviolent action against the Israeli occupation and all forms of violence in Israel and the Palestinian territories. She has previously co-founded and served as the director of project management for Peace by Peace Tours, a travel company that offers educational and political tours in Israel and Palestine. In that capacity, she spent much of the last 10 years leading international groups on alternative tours and fact-finding missions in the region. Born in Jerusalem, Rana is a descendant of a Palestinian refugee family that was expelled from their home in Haifa in 1948. She lives in Bethlehem now, where she also grew up. Kevin Racklin is the Vice President of Public Affairs at J Street, bringing over a decade of experience in U.S.-focused advocacy and nonprofit leadership. He previously served at J Street from 2010 to 2016 in multiple roles, including Deputy Director of Government Affairs and Deputy Chief of Staff. Prior to returning to J Street, Kevin served as the U.S. Director for the Alliance for Middle East Peace, a coalition of more than 150 Israeli and Palestinian peacebuilding organizations. In this role, Kevin led U.S. operations and advocacy efforts for the organization, spearheading the passage of the Nita M. Lowy Middle East Partnership for Peace Act, the single largest investment in peacebuilding in Israel and Palestine. Kevin also served as the Director of Public Policy and Government Affairs at InterAction, the largest alliance of non-governmental international organizations in the United States. In this role, Kevin led InterAction's advocacy efforts to the U.S. government, strengthening the voice and role of civil society in global development and international relief efforts. He is also a senior fellow for Israel and Palestine policy at the Alliance for Peacebuilding. In the 1990s, a breakthrough agreement negotiated between Israeli and Palestinian leaders in Oslo, Norway, set out a process for a mutually negotiated two-state solution to be gradually implemented by the end of the decade. Although the process showed initial promise and progress, a combination of dissatisfaction and distrust led to the breakdown and delay of the process. After frustration and provocation led to the outbreak of violence in 2000, the process proved difficult to restart before coming to a virtual halt 
after 2008. Again, in May 2021, violence broke out, fueled by controversy over planned evictions of Palestinian families in Jerusalem and restrictions at a popular East Jerusalem meeting point as Ramadan began. Conflict between Israelis and Palestinians boiled over, escalating rapidly into one of the worst rounds of violence between the two sides in the last several years. Two advocates for peace in the Middle East, a Palestinian woman and a Jewish man, come together today to discuss the drivers of the violence in the Middle East, which has proven to be a persistent and elusive peace. Welcome to the Peace We Build It podcast, Rana Salman and Kevin Racklin. Thanks for joining with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. So let's start this uh, conversation with, a, I think, an excellent opening question. And uh, let's go with you first, Rana. What is the state of the current conflict between Israel and Palestine? First of all, I think using the term conflict is not the right term to describe the reality we're actually experiencing simply because what is happening between Israel and Palestine is not a conflict, it's an occupation. When we keep describing the situation as a conflict, it makes it difficult to actually move forward. Israel has been oppressing Palestinians for the last 72 years with its policies of land confiscation, building illegal settlements, demolishing Palestinian houses, and depriving Palestinians from their basic human rights. But to go back to your question, which is quite general, actually, I just want to focus on what's happening at the moment in the region. Tensions have been rising again for weeks just outside of Jerusalem, Old City, leading to many arrests of Palestinians, including children. Many people got wounded. There have been many videos, actually, on social media showing Israeli police brutality, when they broke up the Palestinian gatherings near Damascus Gate, there was a Muslim holiday. That's why they were gathering in front of Damascus Gate. This actually reminds us of what happened earlier in May this year. So there is a fear of a renewed violence, actually, especially at this time, there are negotiations between Israel and Hamas about a new deal for a prisoner swap. So what scares me or like what concerns me is what if the demands of both sides were not met? This could also lead to another violence escalation. Just to share also like um, everyday life situation, for example, what we have been experiencing. Currently, we have the olive harvest season in the region, in Palestine, and many families are forbidden from accessing their lands. And... For us Palestinians, as a tradition, this is supposed to be a happy social event where families get together and they pick olives. In many areas, especially in Area C, which at least 60% of the West Bank is considered Area C, it's considered a high risk for Israeli settler attacks. Many families face physical assaults or destruction of their fields or crops. All of that happens with Israeli army protection. So this is currently what we're experiencing in this season of the harvest. This is just an everyday life uh, situation. Okay, thank you. It's sobering to hear and uh, duly noted about your 
question of using the word conflict. It's fair enough. Kevin. So I, I, I don't disagree with, with anything as it relates to the conflict with the current state that Rana has laid out. I would actually say that the status quo maintains and has continued to get worse despite changing government, despite the presidential election here in the United States. And I think that's a very important thing to look at is it, you know, is relates to what's going to be happening next. This Israeli government has made a point to quote unquote shrinking the conflict and that's kind of their, their MO, but they've also talked very distinctly about ensuring that, you know, at least on the prime minister side about what, if there won't be a Palestinian state on his watch, and that's kind of his hard line while the foreign minister takes a different approach. And I think though, that to the point of the May violence and, and what that looked like, there was so much irreversible harm that was done in the last four years as it relates to this conflict that has exacerbated the situation and made it worse, pushing both sides into a very much a different corner, as well as, you know, constant demolition, settler violence, um, et cetera, et cetera. That it's a really bleak situation as it relates to what's going to happen next. I tend to try to be an eternal optimist as it relates to this issue, because that's otherwise I don't know how I would function every day. Um, but I, I do think, though, that there needs to be some real realism as it relates to like how we move beyond this and what happens next. And I think that anyone that's trying to say that you know we're going to have some sort of peace deal in the next year or two is, is just not thinking realistically that there has to be a long-term effort to repair the relationship of many of the relationships that have broken down and really take a hard stance and trying to figure out ways to end the occupation, move forward, with some sort of peace process, but that's going to take time, trust, and real dedicated effort from peacebuilders on the ground, as well as a concentrated push from folks in the United States and beyond the United States. I think it's important to recognize the way the world impacts this conflict and in the way that you know Europeans and others need to take a more firm stance on how things need to move forward. When you say what happens next, what are you thinking? What's What's at the forefront of your mind when you say that? From my vantage point, I think the next step is, you know, what is the current U.S. administration going to do as it relates to this conflict? And, you know, we've given them a number of months now to get up and running. And I think the initial thought was that this was not going to be a front burner issue for the administration. And that's just watching them and observing them. But I think, you know, with the May escalation of violence in, in that war, um, you saw it become a front burner issue because it had to become a front burner issue. But at the same they, they time, they had no choice. They had they no had, choice. They really, were, they were they were forced yeah. into it. Yes. Um, but with the recent, you know, issues in Afghanistan, and I'll just say that like that to be politically delicate as much as I can. I think they are trying to move away from the issue again. But I think there are some concrete things that can and should be done immediately by the, the Biden administration that would show real realism into how to take the current status quo and try to move it forward. And, you know, for me and for, and for others in my, in my organization, J Street and elsewhere, who believe in a two-state solution of how do you secure that future? And what does that look like for an independent Palestinian state living next to an independent Israeli state? And how does that function? And there are things that need to be done to kind of ensure that that happens, to ensure that that doesn't go away. Just simple things like recognizing that products created in the West Bank should be labeled as the West Bank and not as Israel. And a firm understanding that the West Bank is occupied, and that is important to actually say the word occupied. Recognizing that the closure of the East Jerusalem consulate for Palestinians was a massive issue, much more than I think people in the United States realize, and really pushing that forward in terms of making sure that there is 
the consulate in East Jerusalem for Palestinians and to make sure that there is uh, better relationships between uh, the United States and the Palestinians, mm-hmm. as well as working to push Israel and, and Palestinians on freedom of expression, freedom of press, and ensuring that there's good governance on both sides of the border. Because um, there is issues, you know, just in Israel, as we've seen, regarding freedom of press, freedom of movement, and, and right. making sure that happens, as right. well as with the PA. And I, I make no bones about that as well, is that there has been, you know, suppression of activists. I'm sure Rana can speak more to this than I can, honestly. You know, suppression of, of, of activists, suppression of press uh, in, in the West Bank as well. And that's leaving out Gaza completely. And then also just a real understanding that, you know, military aid is not going to solve this conflict alone. And there needs to be a concentrated effort on soft power as it relates to the conflict and trying to push mm-hmm. forward things that are going to bring, I hate to use or trust building, but trust building to the two sides and actually working through secondary actors and, and third uh, tier actors and not just relying on first tier conversations between principles. Elites. You're talking about elites now, right? Exactly. Let's go back and Ron, I want to ask you this specifically to May and what caused the outbreak of, of violence? What what triggered the latest escalation and about how moving forward, where can it go? And so I imagine given the level of violence and you just spoke of this should be a happy time uh, when families are olive picking, uh, but the fear of violence is real. Given the events of May, I would imagine there's a great deal of fear anyway, and it's probably pretty attenuated. Can you give us some some insight about why you think the violence did break out in May? Sure. Well, actually, the outbreak of violence started in May, though clashes uh, took place earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the crisis was triggered when Israeli police erected metal fences at one of the main entrances of the old city. They controlled the access to Damascus Gate. And that actually started in mid-April during the Muslim holiday of Ramadan. That's correct. You're right about that. Sorry. Thank you. Yes. This policy actually sparked violent clashes with Palestinians. For Palestinians during this holy month, sitting at the stairway at Damascus Gate is a holiday tradition. This is where they sit and after the iftar, they chant, they have conversations, they spend their time. Because during the Ramadan, people spend the night outdoors until like dawn. So the clashes continues to spread to Al-Aqsa Mosque, especially when the Israeli police attempted to evacuate the compound, where many Palestinians also sleep over inside the mosque in Ramadan, which also made the crowds very angry. The other reason that provoked Palestinians was over the Israeli decision to evict six Palestinian families in Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in East Jerusalem. So this resulted also in daily protests and daily clashes and it led to Hamas launching rocket fire on, I think, May 10th as a retaliation uh, way. And it continued until a ceasefire came into effect at, uh, in the mid of May. Yes. So, so there were so many events that led actually to the, let's call it a war, a violent war at the end of May. 
Yeah, now I remember it was it was during Ramadan, right? During the celebrations, yes. and that that was pretty uh, invasive and and really heavy handed. It seems like Kevin, do you think that the Israeli government meant to, in fact, provoke? I mean, this is during a holy time as Muslims. I wouldn't presume to know why they did it. I will note that it was around the time of elections. Uh-huh. And that was an interesting thing. I think for those of us in the States who follow this issue probably too closely, is that we could see the writing on the wall the moment uh, things started to spin. And you could see, like, you know, particularly the evictions. And, and then coupling that with what was happening on the, the mount, you could see the moment, you know, Jerusalem is always a hot button issue. It's always a potential tinderbox for, for, for quick and rapid escalation. And it's one of the reasons why we're already starting to see uh, ruminations of it and, and, and rumblings of it again right now is because it is such a sensitive issue. So I think that, you know, to your original question, do I think it was done intentionally? I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, no. Do I think it was sloppy? Yes. Do I think it was it was poorly executed? Like whatever they were trying to do? Yes. And do I think that there was some incitement on the Israeli side? Probably in this case. But I think that to Robert's point, you know, specifically putting up the metal uh, fences around yes. uh, around Al-Aqsa and, what, and whatnot. Uh, and not only that, but also storming Al-Aqsa at one point. There was just nowhere, like you could just, we could see it happening. It was really unfortunate. It it was horrible. So when we look at this current situation that is fraught with fear and tension, the idea of talking about equitable human rights in Israel and West Bank and their treatment of the West Bank Gaza how could that possibly be generated? And I, I'm assuming what you might say here, Kevin, is it's going to have to be a third party like the United States. Is there any capacity to open up any kinds of discussions that could get people around the table internally between Israel and the West Bank? I'm actually going to, I'm going to broaden it out to the, to the, to the PA as well in this instance um, and say, no, not only do I think that it's not possible. I think that if it were to happen, it would actually be worse than anything else because neither party is ready mm-hmm. for that conversation. There's a line that we always hear here is that, you know, if they only just sat down and had direct talks now, they could solve this issue. And direct talks are based on a sense of trust from the other party. And there's zero trust, zero trust. between between the Israeli government and the Palestinian Authority from on both ways. So I think that... In, it's one of the reasons why, for me at least, I, I, I say consistently, it would be extremely detrimental to the peace process if there was an attempt to push for direct negotiations at this moment in time. I think what is better is third-party negotiations, you know, starting to work to create that sense, you know, showing positive step forwards that are that are acceptable to the other side. And so, like, you know, for the, you know, there are things that, you know, people can work on. This idea of, you know, green energy and sharing power between Israelis, Palestinians, and Jordans. What does that look like? Conversation, you know, from the Israeli side, you know, the prisoner payment system that the PA has in place, figuring out a way to reform that and to stop that. On the Israeli side, stopping settlement construction, stopping eviction, stopping, you know, and actually cracking down on settler violence, which they're starting to do now, only because Israeli soldiers were attacked by settlers. And actually 
putting their money where their mouth is as it relates to try to create the relationships that are needed to have these really difficult conversations. And then finally, I would say is that um, even if you were to get to that point, you have to deal with the fact that neither population, and it's hard for me to say this as a person who supports two-state solution and who supports me about this, is really ready to move to that next step of what's going to happen. There was that very big moment in, in the 90s around Oslo and whatnot. The populations were ready. And current polling has shown that there is still support for an idea of a two-state solution. But the moment you start drilling in to demographics and really hammer in on the youth models and what's the next generation think, it's collapsed. And that's an issue that needs to be addressed because no peace process can really move forward without the support of its population and without leaders that are willing to try to bring their populations along. And I don't think both in Israel and in Palestine that there are leaders there ready to have difficult conversation of what does peace look like. So Rana, what could you tell our audience? Because, you know, some people may or may not know, but can you spell out the impact of the occupation and the blockade of Gaza and what that's like for people who live in the West Bank? Yes, sure. Um, Let me just first say that I've never been to Gaza. It's just like maybe two hours away from where I live, but I never had the chance because of the current situation. Actually, and, and the, the inability to travel is that? Yes, the restrictions of movement. And yes. The Gaza blockade actually has been going on for 14 years now. And it has turned Gaza into the world's largest prison, probably, where over maybe 2 million people are living there in a very small area. And it's full of rubble. And they are denied from their basic needs of living. So for us, this is a collective punishment under the international law. And actually, the life inside Gaza is not sustainable. 80% of the population, they rely on international aid to survive. It's a survival uh, case. And uh, there are severe restrictions on the freedom of movement, uh, not only for people, but also for goods. Uh, They suffer from poverty, food insecurity, unemployment. These are all like well-recognized risk factors for mental illness. Other sectors like education, health, electricity, services, they are all collapsing. And even during the last war, the energy sector has been the most affected as a result of targeting electricity networks. In addition to everything that happened recently in May, there also has been impacts of COVID-19 pandemic. Just last year, the Palestinian Center for Human Rights, they reported that 8,000 cancer patients in Gaza did not receive the necessary treatment. The blockade means that hospitals in Gaza are lacking the key equipment and permits to travel for treatment outside Gaza, and which is also difficult to obtain. I just recently saw a photo on social media where people were just gathering on top of each other, applying for like uh, papers to apply for a permit just to leave Gaza. So this is how the situation, it's unbearable and this blockade needs to stop immediately. So it's affecting uh, the people's well-being, actually. Yes, I've seen a video of it and it's quite jarring. And just living among rubble would really affect one emotionally. I mean, it would be terrible. 
because there's been no ability to rebuild or clean it up, or it's just, it's tragic, actually. A follow-up question on this, and I think it dovetails well into it, uh, Rana, is how is the intergenerational trauma of Palestinians and Israelis contributing to the conflict? Kevin, I do want to hear some of your thoughts on this, but if you could talk about the Palestinians and how that that uh, intergenerational trauma and the narratives that are shared among families and communities, how do you think that continues to contribute to violence or a state of insecurity in Palestine? Well, both sides of the conflict have been exposed to traumatic uh, events in the past. And sadly, we still live in an environment where Trauma is ongoing, especially with the recent events in Gaza. I feel so bad for the children who has to see and experience that kind of violence, whether they have witnessed their houses demolished or losing a loved one or uh, becoming like uh, with no safe shelter during that time. So it's really going bad and it definitely contributes to the conflict. But uh, what I would say is that this trauma can also bring an end to the conflict if we only acknowledge the suffering of the other. Because unfortunately, like our political leaders, they continue to magnify the fears from the other. So we are growing up with that kind of mindset. For me, for example, I've, the first time I met an Israeli, it wasn't in the region, actually, it was in Germany. So the only Israeli I know would be either an Israeli soldier or a settler. So the separation, it's not only physical, it's also in the mind there is a separation because there are no ways to connect with the other. So I feel like one step also toward ending the conflict is just to acknowledge that the other side is hurting and they had uh, just to feel empathy like towards them. One of the things that happened just in previous years, for example, when um, the Palestinian president, I think on the eve of the Holocaust memorial ceremony, he actually described the Holocaust as the most horrendous crime in modern history. To make such a statement, it was really powerful. But from the other side, I feel like Netanyahu, he didn't actually take the deep meaning of this statement and use it as a real opportunity that it represented, like to acknowledge the pain also from the Palestinian side and what the Nakba and the displacement has uh, has happened and uh, affected the people. I also come from a family that has been displaced in 1948 from Haifa. So my family from my mother's side are also refugees for a few generations now. To give you an example from the Palestinian side, we also never were raised like to hate the other or to take revenge. Instead, it's more like to understand also the suffering of the other, to put ourselves in their shoes, and also to to try to create trust and openness between uh, the two people. Uh, I would like to also highlight one of the projects we have at Combatants for Peace. It's... uh, Two examples that we have the joint memorial ceremony that we have, which is the largest peace event in history that we do. And uh, 
it's mostly an Israeli event, but we do it jointly and we mourn together because uh, this is remind us that we can transform despair into hope and we can build bridges of compassion. This year, we had over 200,000 people attending uh, the ceremony that we broadcasted online and over maybe a million uh, people streamed it afterwards. We couldn't do it physically and in large numbers because of COVID restrictions. So another example was also the Nakba Remembrance Ceremony, which we also do it jointly. So it's Could, important. Um, yes. Yeah, also- so can I just ask you to explain to our audience what Nakba is for Palestinians be- before you describe the ceremony or, or the process? Because many people don't know yeah. necessarily. Yeah, the Nakba, it's an Arabic word which means catastrophe, and it reflects the events that happened in 1948 when the Palestinians were displaced due to the war. About 700,000 Palestinians were displaced and became refugees. It's also a day of mourning for uh, Palestinians on the 15th of May every year. This is why we do this uh, joint ceremony, actually, so that also Israelis joined to mourn, actually, and honor the Palestinian experience. So this is one of the ways also to try to end the occupation, an opportunity to hear the personal testimonies from everyday people, not just like uh, political statements, so that we can honor the pain of the past and even the present right now. It's the only way towards a peaceful future. This is how we, we see it. Thank you. And I just want the audience to know that the Nakbas viewed by the Palestinians is actually the Israeli Day of Independence. So you have this region where one faction of people experience displacement in the Israeli side of the the region is that they're celebrating the creation of their country. Any thoughts that you want to share here, Kevin? Actually, I would say that I put a plug in for uh, combatants events. I've been and helped. You know, I was, I was with the Alliance for Middle East Peace. I, I worked with them on both the memorial and the Nakba events, and they're they're really powerful. And so for those in your audience that are listening, I, w- I would strongly recommend uh, doing it. It's one of the largest gatherings of Israelis and Palestinians uh, jointly together, and it's it's really powerful and really moving. Yes, I I commend the combatants as well, because memorializing suffering and bringing it together in a significant experience with others is very powerful. So it's, it's a great credit to the combatants for peace. Kevin, tell us quickly, is the Trump administration peace plan and the Trump initiatives in Israel, are they still, do they remain U.S. policy today? Yes, is the short answer. Um, There hasn't been an official change in U.S. policy as it relates to the peace plan. Obviously, I think uh, President Biden is more preferential to the Clinton parameters or the Obama uh, negotiations that happened in 2014. But, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the administration hasn't put out a new set of parameters as it relates that I will say that they they are very much more you know they're very much in favor of the two state solution and pushing hard on that. Um, the things that I would say that they have reversed is one they've restarted aid to the Palestinians. That is completely a reversal of the Trump administration policy, and it's really welcome. I can't stress that enough. How amazing it is the fact that they were able to do this, even despite there was some congressional opposition to it. And two, the idea about the East Jerusalem consulate that is something that they are working on right now, and, and it's good. 
that they are doing that. The Trump peace plan is just a plan. It was their idea. I'm sure it disappeared the moment on January 20th at uh, 12.01 p.m. I'm sure that it kind of disappeared from the State Department's uh, official guidelines, but I don't think anything formally has been done. I will say, though, that one thing that the Biden administration has embraced is the Abraham Accords in this sense. And that is, I think, still very much the uh, policy of the United States is to promote that normalization. And what I would say to that is that it's not a bad thing, but I would say it's not a substitute for trying to solve the core conflict, which is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And speaking of initiatives, J Street has welcomed the introduction of the Two-State Solution Act that was introduced on the Hill by Congressman Andy Levin. What kind of reaction are you getting from the White House on that legislation? At this point, I think they're just still observing it and, and analyzing it. I think a lot of what is in that legislation is stuff that, you know, President Biden, when he was campaigning, he pushed for, as well as things that, you know, J Street has pushed forward for, you know, the mm-hmm. last couple of years as it relates. So it's it's for them, it's no surprise. This is where we're going. And I think you know, the whole goal is to show the Biden administration that there is support for taking some small measured approaches to bringing the U.S. closer to what U.S. policy looks like has looked like in the past, I should say, at least. Sure. So, Rana, these community processes that you've engaged in that you just uh, shared with our audience, do you consider those to be peace-building initiatives? Uh, Yes, actually, we have so many programs at Combatants for Peace. And one of the most powerful things, I would say, sharing personal stories from ex-combatants. When they sit together, an Israeli and a Palestinian, and they share with groups, their personal experience and how they transformed from using violence as a, a means for uh, fighting and transforming into nonviolent means and how they are both now working together to end the occupation. It's very powerful and we might not see the change immediately, but it definitely changes the minds and hearts of people. And this is, gives uh, hope that while there are such initiatives exist, that there could be peace because if we can work together especially these kind of groups it's still an ongoing conflict and they are working together at this moment so this is maybe one of the rare movements that are working together palestinians and israelis so it is definitely uh, leaves a good uh, role model to others i want to read to our audience your mission statement for combatants uh, for peace Uh, And I quote, we are a group of Palestinians and Israelis who have taken an active part in the cycle of violence in our region. Israeli soldiers serving in the IDF and Palestinians as combatants fighting to free their country, Palestine, from the Israeli occupation. We, serving our peoples, raised weapons which we aimed at each other and saw each other only through gun sights have established combatants for peace on the basis of nonviolence principles. I mean, the mission statement is extremely powerful. And uh, full disclosure, I did serve in the U.S. Army for 15 years. And when you can meet your opponent in a place situated to understand each other's grievances, you potentially can transform. And I think the work that you're doing, Rana, is 
is so powerful. And with your colleague, Beth Schumann, as well, who's Jewish, uh, your Jewish counterpart at Combatants for Peace. Yes, thank you. I think that, um, you know, there's much more that we could say, but I think what you're both revealing to me is there that the situation is kind of in a state of stasis with potential for violence, uh, potential of uh, harm as well. And so what Kevin has mentioned, like what comes next? Let me just ask you, Kevin, do you see any movement in the administration to undertake a major initiative in the Middle East? At this point, no, I think that, you know, they're, they're really focusing on obviously the Afghan withdrawal and what, what's going on there. And I think also determining what to do around the JCPOA as it relates to Iran. Um, and so I think those are kind of like the big ticket things uh, in, the, in, in the region that they're focusing on at the moment. And I also think they're very careful of how to engage on this issue because the, the current Israeli government is markedly better than the previous administration. And they know that things could change at a moment's moment and elections could come to a head quickly. Um, but I think that if they are, they're keeping it very quiet. But I think they are doing private and, and quiet things to try to improve the situation on the ground. Rana, do you have any final comments or observations that you think are really important? Uh, I just want to continue on what uh, Kevin just said, because I feel the U.S., they can and they should play a leading role in solving the conflict. I would say that Biden administration is like a huge improvement from Trump's administration. But at the same time, it wasn't a priority for uh, Biden in the first months of his administration to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. But the war on Gaza is what forced him to interfere. But at the same time, the U.S. position wasn't so much clear after like Biden administration approved the arms sale to Israel. So this is why the Palestinians also kind of lost trust of the U.S. as a mediator in this uh, peace process, kind of. We would ask uh, the U.S. to make it uh, a priority again and uh, support the rights of both Israelis and Palestinians to peace and self-determination and to stop the ongoing evictions, demolishings, and settlement expansions. And we rely on the American community and J Street and all these amazing organizations to help with that and put the pressure on the government. I just want to say to both of you, and Kevin mentioned Europe, I'm a Europeanist, and we're watching a potential escalation in, in violence in the Balkans, and Europe is moving very little in the United States as well. And so I don't share your optimism on Europe weighing in on the Middle East, although I think they should as well, because the Americans, this is a multipolar world we're living in, and the Americans can't do these things alone when you have so many emerging uh, illiberal states such as Russia, Turkey. There's a number of problems in the world with authoritarian leaders. And right now, it doesn't seem that European leadership is even paying attention to their own backyard. I hate to weigh in with some negativity, but that's kind of what I'm seeing. I hope I'm wrong. I'll just say that. I'll, I'll leave it there. I hope I'm wrong. 
I want to thank both of you for taking time out of your really busy schedules and dealing with the time zone change and gap. Kevin and Ron, I really want to thank you so much for sharing with our audience. Uh, the Alliance for Peacebuilding took a formal stand on the Middle East this year, and uh, our statement about the AFP's um, priorities and values is on our website. I'm going to urge our listeners to go to Combatants for Peace, to their website, which is uh, really wonderful to know about their work, and also to go to J Street, Combatants for Peace is cfpeace.org, J Street is jstreet.org, and of course, the Alliance for Peace Building. Uh, you can find us, Google us anywhere. And I want to thank both of you again. Finally, I want to thank our audience for tuning in to the Peace We Build It podcast. And thanks to our guest, Rana Salman, Palestinian Executive Director of Combatants for Peace, and Kevin Rackland, Senior Fellow at the Alliance for Peacebuilding and Vice President of Public Affairs at J Street. The Peace We Build It podcast is made possible through the financial support of the Alliance for Peacebuilding based in Washington, D.C. Tanya Domi is the host and senior fellow for communications at the Alliance for Peacebuilding, and Kevin Wolf, the audio engineer, provides technical assistance. This podcast can be found on Spotify, Apple, and where all podcasts are found.